0: Now, we had just gotten into the story of Joseph last time we were together, uh, a couple weeks ago, and we're going to be concentrating on the events that unfold with Joseph primarily now as we make our way through to the end of Genesis over the next few weeks. But before we get back into Joseph, we have a very interesting chapter that we need to uh, look at that kind of, puts its way right in between um, the narrative of Joseph and, it, and it, uh, it gives us a little bit of insight into Judah and the focus is on Judah. Today we're looking at ultimately the Judah and Joseph juxtaposition. The Judah and Joseph juxtaposition. Now, like I said, although it seems very disconnected from the story of Joseph, it appears to be very significant kind of to that overarching narrative that eventually leads us to Jesus. And there's several similarities that stand out in these stories of chapter 38 with Judah and then into chapter 39 with Joseph and on into the end of Genesis. Both become separated for a time from their brothers. Both face sexual temptation but deal with it very differently. Both Judah and Joseph receive the honor of their brothers. Joseph received it when his brothers bowed before him and Judah received it in the blessing that was passed down to him from Jacob at the end of Genesis. This again has future implications that will be fulfilled throughout or through Jesus Christ. Both stories also so wonderfully capture God's sovereign work in accomplishing salvation for his people. He did so through Joseph in delivering his family from famine and he will do so with Judah and Tamar being links in the family line of Jesus. Now though... Judah has a a rough start. He's going to prove to be a man of substance that we'll see here as the narrative kind of progresses throughout Genesis, something that we also see very much with Joseph here. Now, the surprises uh, begin to really take place just after the opening of the story uh, of Joseph with a jarring injunction here in chapter 38 with Judah and Tamar in this episode that This story is so unexpected that the older and critical commentators argued it was an awkward editorial insertion. But most today admit that the presence of this unusual story was intentional. And actually argue that it was placed here for special purposes. Some of them being, of course, the the Tamar story enlarges that greater theme of Genesis that the sovereign choice of the younger over the older by God. We'll see that unfold in chapter 38. And more so, the immoral conduct of Judah and Tamar and Canaan demonstrates how remarkable Joseph's uh, chasteness was in pagan Egypt, where we will be finding him in chapter 39. So. Here's what we're going to be looking at as we hit Genesis 38 here. We're going to see the error by Judah, the plan of Judah, and the humbling in Judah. As we move into chapter 39, we see the attitude of Joseph, the action by Joseph, and then the accusation against Joseph. So pick it up here, chapter 38, verse 1. Here's what we read. That it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain... um, uh, visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and he went into her. So she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Kezeb when she bore him. Let's stop right there. Now. Judah finds a wife from a Canaanite man now this was something that I think at this point Judah should have understood very clearly this is not really the the intention of God or the desire of God this is not something that Judah should have been walking into and entertaining here for himself Abraham had warned Eliezer When he sent his servant Elazar out to find a wife for Isaac, he said, do not find a wife or take a wife for Isaac from among the Canaanites. Genesis 24, verse 3. And then also, Isaac gave Jacob the same warning in Genesis 28:1. So we've seen the problems that kind of ensued when God's people go and intermarry with those that are not of God's people. Uh, We saw the burden that esau's wives were when he took canaanite woman for himself see god's given many commands doesn't he throughout his word of how his people are to come out and be separate from the pagan practices of the world we're to be in the world no doubt but we're not to be of the world and we're to be so careful that we're not being stained by the world by being in unequally yoked relationships it's quite sad to see that uh you know many times christians feel kind of justified you know marrying somebody that's an unbeliever and think oh well you know what I just really feel this is God's will for my life and you know I believe they're going to get saved and everything and they they marry an unbeliever thinking that things are gonna you know good things will come out of it and inevitably it rarely ends well. Judah sadly is not heeding need this caution right now someone once said marry an unbeliever and you get the devil for a father-in-law and that can be very true now praise the Lord here that God can turn all things around and by His grace work even through our mistakes as we're gonna see clearly here in this chapter chapter 38 but it often produces a lot of unnecessary heartache and difficulty when we step away from God's ideals and God's ideals is for us to be equally yoked spiritually with somebody that we're going to be spending our life with and in other kinds of relationships God has often had that call for his people to come out from the world and be separate from the world not to say that we do not engage with other people and and interact with other people no doubt we're to do that as we're being a witness and light in the world but we're not to be unequally yoked in and, and linking ourselves up in a way that's not going to have a, a, a good result here, and Judah is erring greatly in this, so much so that he calls his first son heir. I think that's kind of short for heir, realizing his mistakes here. But Judah and his wife, they have three kids, and this is really where the difficulty now begins to ensue. As I said, you know, oftentimes there's going to be a lot of heartache and difficulty that comes from these kinds of relationships, and so we read in verse six. Look at this. Then then Judah took a wife for Ur er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said, Onan, go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass, when he went into his brother's wife, that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. Man, that's rough right here. It's a tough beginning here. Now, Judah's kids are, are growing up under this mixed belief system. They're seeing things coming at them from all, all over and Judah perpetuates this now by giving his firstborn a Canaanite wife himself. You're not trying to you know, make things right now. He brings a Canaanite wife for his son and her name is Tamar. And heir at this point, is just a wicked man. Now, we're not sure what he did, but we know that it was serious enough for God to say, this guy needs to be taken out. This guy needs to be put down lest he cause any more damage or, you know, problems here. So he's taken out. Now, Judah asked Onan, his second-born son, to have a child with Tamar the widow. Now, that might sound very odd to us. That might sound like, what? Judah, why would you... Do something of that, but this is very customary of this day. When a person uh, was married to another and they died without having children, well, the next in line would go and have a child with that widow, and that child would be now the widow's and it would continue on the family line, the family name, and give her that, uh, you know, that prosperity and provision and security for. The widow now. Remember when uh, they came to Jesus and asked, Okay, this woman was married to this man and then he died, and then the brother came and married her, and the next brother, and the next brother. And the question was, you know, whose wife will she be in heaven, right? And they're all going, None of us, I don't want anything to do with it. She keeps killing us. I don't want anything to do with it. No. The the answer was that it it doesn't it's we're not gonna be given a marriage like that in heaven. So there's that There's that custom, and and it became so much so that it became uh, a part of their law. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5-6 to says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So this was uh, something that God incorporated into the law to bring that provision and security for the widow. So this child would then be counted as the firstborn of the deceased man, but Onan, he wants no part of this. He's like, I want to, I want to. we don't know exactly his, his motive here, but he's like, I want a son for myself I don't think he's looking to pass on a son for this woman or for his dead brother at this time. So he goes and does something here, not in a sexually sinful way, but in a selfish motive here. This is the problem with what Onan did in emitting onto the ground here. This was something that wasn't of a so much a, a sexual sin, but it was a selfish one. And so Onan is taken out as well. Now that verse has been used over the years to kind of be a proof text against, you know, birth control that. Uh, you know, it's not right. But the issue here in this verse, again, like I said, it's not so much about preventing a birth, but rather dishonoring his brother and disobeying his father. That's really what's at stake here. And and Onan, because of the line that we're dealing with, the line of Judah, God took him out here. But look at verse 11. Look at the plan of Judah now. Then Judah said to Tamar, verse 11, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Sheila's is grown. For he said, lest he also die like his brothers and Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. So, after you have two kids killed by this woman, you're like, I'm not so quick to want to give my next born to you here. I'm going to hold off a little bit on this here, right? And so, Judah's plan is like, remain a widow, go back in your father's house, let's let Sheila grow up now and, and uh, you know mature, become a little bit more of a, a man here. But as we'll see, Judah has no intention really on carrying this plan out here. Look at what we read in verse 12. Now, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. And was told, it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. Now when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. So Tamar, you know, quite clearly understood what was going on here, that, that Judah is keeping Shelah away from her. She's seeing things not progressing as it should. She knows, like, man, I got I to gotta do something here or else I'm not going to have any kind of family now for myself. So she resorts to some trickery now to bring about her family. So Tamar, what she does, she dresses up as a temple prostitute and covers her face so she wouldn't be recognized so she could you know disguise herself uh, from Judah. Now this was not super unusual as women in this culture, in this Canaanite culture would devote themselves for a time to this practice. It was a part of their worship of their false gods, and it raised money for their temple and no doubt brought probably a lot of converts there as well, but it was an accepted practice in this day among the pagans. So again, this is such a seemingly unusual thing that's going on, but it was a very common thing to see in this day and in this place. But again, this should not have been an option for Judah. This should not have been something that God's people would be entertaining or subjecting themselves to, but yet he feels like it's all okay. His wife is passed. He's a widower now. He's being led more by lust than he is by the Lord at this time. And it's not going to go well for him here. Look at what we see happening, verse 16. Then he turned to her, by the way, and said, Please let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He said, "I I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. So she understands, you know, um, okay, you're going to send me a goat. Well, you haven't been very trustworthy so far. So uh, what are you going to give me is a bit of collateral right now, a bit of a down deposit. Jesus said, well, what do you need? What do you want? She asked for his signet and cord and the staff that's in his hand. And these are very personal items, you know. The signet uh, may have been a ring. It also could have been this kind of um, seal, most likely a cylindrical one that was uh, held around his neck by this cord. And it would be used to kind of put that stamp of, you know, this is Judah's, you know, property type thing. This was a very personal thing. Be like, leaving a driver's license or a credit card to someone as collateral. So, she knows exactly, Tamar, what's going on and she wants to keep, you know, Judah accountable now with these things. Also, probably knowing like if she ends up with a child, uh, this wouldn't be good for her as, as we'll see. Unless she has these very personal items that Judah will not be able to explain away. Now what's interesting is there are three generations of deceit that are now complete. Each involving an item of identity and a goat. Jacob deceived Isaac by wearing a goat skin. Judah deceived Jacob by dipping Joseph's robe in goat's blood and now Tamar has deceived Judah. And the deceit involved disguise, items of identity and yes, another goat. Very interesting to see how this has kind of been perpetuated in this line, beginning with Jacob. Now through this encounter, Tamar finally conceives. She gets pregnant. Look at what we see here in verse 20. So Judas sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, where's the harlot who is openly by the roadside? And they said, there was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed, for I sent this young goat and you have not found her. And it came to pass, about three months after, that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So what's happened here is Judah is going out to find these very personal pieces of property. And God, she can't be found. Judah has given up much by entering this illicit affair, thinking that it's gonna be, you know, no big deal. Things will continue on as normal after. And it rarely does. When you engage in that kind of illicit. Or lustful activity, there's much loss when we're prone to be driven by sin and lust, as Judah has been here. And Judah now, he holds some very harsh judgment for Tamar upon hearing of her pregnancy. And notice he's quick to punish the sin in her and yet ignore that same sin that was in him. He's he's no better. He's in the exact same thing and yet he's quick to call her out on this to the point where he's ready to carry out you know uh, the law now upon her and judgment upon her in having her killed now she is viewed as a harlot and and the punishment surprisingly was not unjust leviticus 21 verse 9 speaks about these very things being carried out in this way very strong judgment being given to her and judah's ready to act upon it And yet overlook his own sin but God's not done with Judah here yet notice what we see here verse 25 we see the humbling now in Judah says here in verse 25 when she was brought out she sent to her father-in-law saying by the man to whom these belong I am with child and she said please determine who these are the signet and cord and staff so Judah acknowledged them and said she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila my son and he never knew her again. Here we see that biblical principle: be sure your sin will find you out. Thankfully, Judah doesn't hear and go, "Yeah, who's who's signature is that? whose staff is that? Come on, somebody, speak up already! Come forth!" And he's like cowering in the background, like, "Oh, where's my exit? I gotta get out of here!" Right? He's not trying to pass the buck at all. He owns up to, and that's exactly what God wants of us when sin has been revealed, convicted, confronted, that we own up and say, yes, I confess. I've done this, God. We need to repent, and we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And as we humble ourselves, what does the Bible say? That He will lift you up. This seems to to mark a turning point now in the life of judas he will be seen as a man of character ultimately moving forward through the narrative in genesis and he'll receive a great blessing from jacob in in genesis chapter 49 this is going to be the line that the messiah is going to come through that's amazing to think about that that despite what we see here in this chapter this is the man that god's going to choose to use to bring the messiah through and not just through judah but with Tamar as well, a Canaanite woman. Who played the who, who kind of played the role of a of a harlot here. Look at verse twenty seven. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly, and she said, How did you break through? This breach be upon you, therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So, the story of these two twins, only the second time that uh, we, that only two times in the Bible did we hear twins being born. Rebecca here, uh, Rebecca and then Tamar here. And it illustrates for us God's unusual choosing in that he picks the younger over the older, right? Because a very traditional thing to honor the firstborn, he had all the rights and the privileges. But what we see happening is that God oftentimes flips the common and normal practices to do a work that he gets all the glory for. God loves to work that way. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world that put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world that put to shame the things which are mighty. And, and God, through the book of Genesis so far, in the choosing of Jacob over Esau, in choosing Perez over Zerah, God is showing that he is the one that is sovereign and he chooses whom he chooses. More amazingly, this again showcases the great grace of God. He can take our mistakes and blunders, like Judah's experienced, and turn them around to bring good from them. Solomon came from David's blunder with Bathsheba. And David's mistake in taking a census selfishly and pridefully brought about the location for the temple. It's not to say, hey, go ahead guys, make all the mistakes you want, go ahead and sin, God will use it, He'll turn it around. It's not to say just actively engage in those things, but it's to understand that though we may endure pain for a time from that sin, or those mistakes, they won't thwart the work and plan of God. He can use them for His glory. Tamar has the distinction of being in the genealogy of Jesus now, and listed in Matthew chapter one. Chuck Smith said this, four women are named only in Matthew's gospel, all of them outside of the Jewish race. For even Bathsheba was a Hittite. All of them had shady experiences in their past. It speaks of the grace of God. We may not have the most honorable past, and we may be ashamed of it as we look back, Yet God does not disqualify us or kick us out. He would rather wash us, cleanse us, forgive us, and then use us as trophies to his grace. Praise the Lord for that. Isn't that wonderful? That's why when we err, when we sin, we don't run and hide and think that's it. I'm I'm washed up. I'm rejected, I'm out. No, we confess, we repent, we bring that to the Lord. Say, God, I was wrong. That's what it means to confess. It means to say the same thing as, it means to say to God like, I recognize this is not right in your eyes. This is wrong. I confess that. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Lord, I wanna, I wanna continue to, to walk with you and be used of you. And when we bring that to the Lord, he can turn those things around and actually, actually do something with it that showcases his great grace and his glory. And we see that in Matthew 1 with the the listing of Rahab, a harlot, and Tamar now listed there. Ruth, Bathsheba, these women that are named in the genealogy of Jesus that God is also showing. I'm gonna go outside of this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm gonna work through even Gentile people. It's amazing showing that great grace and calling to all people. Now, as we move into Genesis 39, and now pick up the story of Joseph again and really carry this through to the end of Genesis, we see an immediate contrast in these two chapters that we're looking at Judah, a man who was given to physical pursuits and pleasures, and then Joseph, a man who was tempted to give in but did not. So let's look at the attitude of joseph here chapter 39 verse 1 now joseph had been taken down to egypt and potiphar an officer of pharaoh captain of the guard, an egyptian brought him from the ishmaelites who had taken him down there so as joseph is taken to egypt the narrative kind of glances over some key movements that we would maybe overlook or miss if we weren't looking for it to back up a little remember joseph He's thrown in a pit by his brothers, right? He's left for dead. Yet at just the right time, a company of Ishmaelite traders come by that causes Judah to think maybe it'd be better to sell Joseph than to have his blood upon their own hands. So Joseph is taken to Egypt and sold again. Only this time, he's bought by Potiphar, who happens to be an officer of Pharaoh. The leading and the orchestration of all these events is just so beyond happenstance, isn't it? You see so clearly that God is orchestrating all these things to bring Joseph to a specific place for a specific purpose that God is going to work through in his life. Such a wonderful reminder for us that no matter what might befall us presently, God is still at work and he's leading through every trial to carry out his purposes in our lives. Look at verse 2 here, it says, that the Lord was with Joseph. Man, those are good words to hear isn't it the lord was with joseph and he was a successful man and he was in the house of his master the egyptian and his master saw that the lord was with him and that the lord made all he did to prosper in his hand so joseph found favor in his sight and served him then he made him overseer of his house and all that he had he put under his authority verse 5 so it was from the time that he had made him an overseer of his house and all that he had that the lord blessed the egyptian's house for joseph's sake and the blessing of the lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field thus he left all that he had in joseph's hand and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate now joseph was handsome in form and appearance how many of us would have become maybe a little bitter at the situation that has been unfolding and ensuing in the life of joseph all that this man has been through you'd begin to think, God, I thought we were kind of together on some of these things here. Like, where are you? What have you done to me? What's going on? I mean, Joseph was that top dog at home. Now he's a servant. He could have felt a little bit ripped off here. He could have begun to question God, blame God. He could have just had a bad attitude and done a lousy job in Potiphar's house. But that's not who Joseph is. He's a man of character, a man of virtue right he served despite the kind of dire circumstances that has befallen his life he's a man that lived out what colossians three seventeen and verse 23 or 24 says and it says whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him colossians three twenty three, and whatever you do do it heartily as to the lord and not to men knowing that from the lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the lord christ I think that is such a key principle to live by that whatever we're doing and there might be times where you may not like what you're doing you may not like how somebody has asked you or directed you to do something but they become opportunities to say Lord I'm going to serve you in this I'm going to glorify you through this I'm not doing this for that person I'm going to do it for you God I want to live my life that will, will honor you, and Joseph was living that way. I love what we read there that he was a successful man. It's a successful man. See, Joseph didn't need to be a ruler to be successful. He's not looking at this going, no, wait a second, I haven't had my brothers bowing down to me yet, that's a dream I had. They're gonna bow down to me, then I'll really be successful. He's not looking at that, no, he's going, and God's calling him, he's a successful man. Why? Because he's being faithful. Right where God has placed him he just needed to do what was right and do what the Lord has called him to and what the Lord has brought him to Joseph is living as a servant and yet he's a successful man I love that God's success success in God's eyes is not about being at the top of the ladder of your business or corporation or having the most money in your bank account God equates success to simply being faithful to what he's called you to and for us it's going to look very differently at times that's going to be different how he might call me or equip me as as he will with somebody else but the key is are you being faithful to serve the Lord in that to follow the Lord to be used to the Lord there that's what it means to be successful Be faithful in what God wants of you and you'll be successful and satisfied now no doubt Joseph has had to grow up quickly transforming from that coddled protected prized possession of his father to having to lean heavily now upon his Heavenly Father it seems apparent that these have been building teaching years for Joseph to know how to handle the difficulties and pressures of life they've been trials that refine you and either make you bitter or better. In Joseph's life, the outcome has been a better one as he's grown in character and wisdom and patience. Patience is so key. These have been teaching years for him, and we like those teaching years to be very short ones, don't we? We want to kind of like move on, Lord, okay, I think I got it now. I got the lesson. It's been a couple months. I'm ready to move on now. But sometimes We need to learn patience and perseverance. As well, Joseph remained a servant in the house of Potiphar for 11 years. He was 17 when he was sold by his brothers. He was 30 when he went before Pharaoh. Spent two years in prison before that. 11 years he's been a servant in Potiphar's house. 11 years where he's been refined, taught, grown, matured. David Guzik says, 11 years seems like a long time many think if advancement is from God it must come quickly sometimes this is the case but not normally normally God allows good things to develop slowly human children have the longest development time both in the womb and in childhood compared to animals takes many years for an acorn to become an oak however squash might grow almost overnight but uh, good things take time to grow now the end of verse 6 here kind of really sets us up for what is to come all right now joseph was a was handsome in form and appearance joseph not only had a great work ethic the guy's a real catch all around and look at what that leads to here in verse 7 and it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on joseph she said lie with me but he refused and said to his master's wife, "Look, my master does not know what is with me in the house, and he has committed all that he has to my hand. There's no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So unlike Judah, chapter 38, Joseph held his ground in the face of temptation. How did Joseph resist this? First of all, Joseph saw that others trusted him. He says there in verse 8 that Potiphar's committed all that he has to my hand. Joseph was accountable, and he didn't want to let others down. Secondly, Joseph saw that special position, that there is no one greater in this house than I, he said. He goes on to say, at the end of verse 9, how then can I this great wickedness he saw a special position that he held and there's responsibility with that thirdly he saw this as a great wickedness and sin against God understand that oftentimes we can kind of overlook sin thinking I don't know who's gonna know about this this isn't gonna hurt anybody this can just be private And we can excuse sin but yet Joseph saw this he says not how can I sin against Potiphar or how can I sin against you He says how can I do this and sin against God Joseph knew that God was with him and that God sees all and Joseph knew that whatever he did he'd be doing against God that's important for us to realize and that should be something that stops us in our tracks when we're ready to entertain something that's not of the Lord to realize God how could I a child of God do this against you you're here with me why would I subject myself to this why would I let myself do this in your company how can I do this against you God we break the heart of our father when we entertain and engage in sin but notice what Joseph did here he didn't entertain it He didn't stick around and kind of debate with Potiphar's wife here. Well, is this really a good idea? When's your husband coming home? Like, is this, like, he doesn't debate this at all. He doesn't entertain it. He flees. He gets out of there. He runs. These need to be things that we constantly guard ourselves in. We need to be putting on the armor of God daily because the enemy is persistent you know you may have resisted him today but guess what he's gonna be back tomorrow have you put on the armor of god have you put these checks around you to go i want to i want to stand true for the lord and in the lord and i need to be aware that the enemy is persistent i need that armor of god we're going to see potiphar's wife (laughs) She's a persistent woman here. Look at verse 10. So it was that she spoke to Joseph day by day that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. This woman didn't give up. She keeps hounding him. Verse seven, but it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was inside. How convenient, perhaps arranged by her, that she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside and so it was when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside that she called to the men of her house and spoke to them saying see he has brought into us a hebrew to mock us he came into me to lie with me and i cried out with a loud voice and it happened when he heard that i lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled and went outside so she kept his garment with her until his master came home This woman didn't know how to take no for an answer, did she? This is kind of the root of the Me Too movement happening right here in Genesis for us. Now Joseph's in a conundrum. Because, you know, to keep denying her, would probably cause life to be very miserable for him. Perhaps to be relegated to a much lesser role or difficult work in his house. Maybe he's questioning this. Not doing myself any favors by rejecting her. Should I get... But then on the other hand to forsake the lord would bring about greater harm joseph knew that he must live first for god and honor him above all and in these situations we need to trust the lord and believe that he will provide and protect us the bible says first corinthians Ten, verse 13 no temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation also will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it see God will always provide a way out to where we can understand there's no temptation that we can feel justified or excuse saying well God you don't understand This was the situation. What was I to do? I couldn't do anything. No, Bible says there'll be a way of escape for you. But the issue is you need to take it. God will provide a way out, but you gotta walk in it. And Joseph did just that. He flees. He gets out of there. He gets away from this situation. David entertained the temptation, when he went up on his rooftop, he sees Bathsheba bathing, and he entertained that, but there's a way out the same stairs that took David up to the rooftop, were the same stairs that would have led him right back down, and out of that tempting situation, but he failed to take that, there's a way of escape, but we got to use it. Well, let's look at the accusation against Joseph, verse 17 here. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. So it happened as I lifted my voice and cried out that he left his garment with me and fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. So this wife now just begins to kind of add to the story, just starts to kind of stretch things out a little bit, right? Make it a bigger deal than it really was, and, and completely falsifies it all. And as Potiphar is told of the events, notice it says that his anger was aroused. And then he has Joseph put in prison. but the, the debate is, where was his anger directed to see if potiphar had believed his wife and thought joseph had attempted to rape her which is essentially what she's saying joseph would have been killed but he's spared he's put in prison why was joseph spared perhaps potiphar saw greater trust in joseph than he did in his own wife His anger seems to be directed more towards her for causing this trouble. Maybe this is something that's happened before. And he's on to her. Either way, Joseph is not catching a lot of breaks here. He's been rejected by his brothers. Sold as a slave. Falsely accused. And he now ends up in prison. How would you be feeling right about now? After all these events and all you've been trying to do is live faithful to the Lord I'm sure your first response wouldn't be well thank you Lord for all these blessings it's just so wonderful I'm sure we'd be doing a little belly aching right now yet we have the fortunate view don't we of seeing what is to come in this whole story and the Lord is setting up Joseph for a huge blessing that will in turn bless an entire nation God's at work in all this. Joseph had every right to kind of complain and and grumble. Thank God it just goes from one tragedy to the next. But yet God is using each of these events to bring about a greater work in and through Joseph. It's amazing as we begin, as we can, you know, look ahead and see all that's gonna come and look back and see how God was at work in each of these things. And yet in our own lives, we need to be able to look at those things and go, though I don't have the convenience or the opportunity to see what is to come, I know the same God that was working in Joseph's life to bring about his will is the same God that's at work in my life. And though I don't understand maybe why I go through certain trials or hardships, I can trust the Lord and go God I know that you're a good God. I know Romans 8 28 you work all things for the good to those that love you and are called according to your purposes that's never been so clear as it is in the life of Joseph we can trust him we can lean on the Lord and know that whatever I might be encountering today and God has something great in store out of that and from that at a later time we don't hear of joseph complaining or arguing back in defense i think joseph learned to live that life of just trusting the lord he's discovered the blessing of living in submission and surrender to the lord jacob had to learn that as well but he had to learn that through much pain and difficulty having to wrestle with the lord have his hip put out of place but joseph is doing this willingly and it seems that he went very willingly to prison we don't hear that he's trying to give a defense or state his cause he went willingly and it's a powerful picture of jesus christ who surrendered to the father just like joseph jesus was rejected by his brethren came as a servant he was falsely accused and yet spoke not a word it was his submission That would ultimately lead to his greatest or ultimate exaltation it's gonna be the same for Joseph what was the key well let's read on look at verse 21 but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison and the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison whatever they did there it was his doing The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. Throughout this chapter, we see repeatedly that the Lord was with Joseph. Verse two, verse three, verse 21, verse 23. Seems to be the focus that the writer here is looking to really highlight. We often read through this account And we highlight, you know, the faithfulness of Joseph. Be a Joseph, we say. Run from temptation. Live pure like Joseph. But the highlight of this passage is to showcase the faithfulness of God and that He is with His people in times of trouble and hardship. And it's through the ongoing presence of God in our lives that we can endure and keep living faithfully for Him. We'll see this continue to unfold as we go through the story of Joseph here. But tonight, worship team, you can come up. Tonight, many principles, lessons, applications to make for ourselves. Chapter 38, God is sovereign. He chooses who he chooses and he's so gracious. Bringing about good from seeming mistakes and sin In the story of Joseph we see how we need to trust him and he's at work he's faithful God is good and no matter what you might be going through carry on knowing that God is with you he'll never leave you or forsake you and it's only by God being with us are we able to prosper and are we able to continue on let's trust him let's hold on to him let's keep living in him and for him all right let's stand let's take some time and just respond to the lord here through his word and maybe there's some things that you need to be just asking the lord to do in your life here tonight let's take some time here as we have the freedom to do so to just wait on the lord and to take these things to the lord continuing to ask him for his help and his strength in our lives here